Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. On three Triple R... On Radio Marinara, it is two minutes past the hour of nine o'clock. I'm Anthony Boxshaw. I'm Dr. Beach. Dr. Beach, how go thee? Um, I'm, I'm quite well. In fact, I'm, I'm very well. And you? I'm, yeah, I'm very well. I'm kind of... I've been a bit jittery with this opening upness thing. Like it's all just... You know, you never know. But but it seems to be going okay. So I'm good. It is, yeah. We were a bit jittery about going out. Decided to... um. Go yeah. out Friday night, though. Very nice. Oh, good. It's Went to a pub, actually sat in a pub. Like in, a, like in a, an actual place with other humans. With other humans. Like in 3D. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is good. It's it good felt for the soul. a little bit odd, but <laughs> yeah, it was it does, fun. Yeah, 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 yeah. And look, you know, and one, one other person that we have seen in 3D today is the masterful and extraordinary Professor Tim Thorpe. Yeah. Um, he just, he, he's, taken in, he's taken it to another level again, of course, this morning. And I, you know, I've run out of superlatives, honestly, Dr. Beach. One does run out of superlatives. Um, it's, yeah, it's, uh, there he is. Wandering how about, how about. Him. It's just Tim. I just Tim, who defies superlative. Yeah. That would be, if there's a word, perhaps if anyone knows a word that defies superlatives, they could pop it on our Facebook, because that's what Tim does. He's, he's, he's a national treasure. It'd have to be something starting with omni. 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 Yeah, omni potent. Like, or or meta. Omnipotent. And yeah. <laughs> We love him, Om- we Omni just Meta. love the man and, and the seamlessness with which we segue our shows is stunning and it's down to his excellence and brilliance, technically. Yeah, yeah. We do love him, we actually do love him and, and he hates it when we do this because we because he's, he's a humble man and we think he's, the sun shines out of everything. <laughs> hey, you're on Radio Marinara and we've got a big show, we've got a very big show, we're kind of like a, it's like a, um, a it's a cop. 26 focus it, show. It, it's a COP26 show. Is. We're going to find out all about COP. You've we been are. doing a lot of research about COP. I have. I decided that I should bite the bullet and find out A, what it means, and B, what it means. <laughs> Good, because I'm a bit puzzled. So yeah, it, me it, too. You're gonna, I'm going to be asking I you the questions. Skin. You may be you asking me questions, but yeah. Look, I'm going to give you a spoiler alert here. Mm-hmm. There's a shirtload of acronyms, and right. there's a bunch of words that kind of you need to define. Big words? Some of them are big, but just some of them are kind of used in ways that we don't. Mm-hmm. You know, like they have specific uses. So, and, and it is quite, um, I think <laughs> I, I've come to the conclusion that these United Nations things are complex. <laughs> anyway, we're going to talk about what it means and also what it means. Yeah. You know, you just, you know, anyway, that'll be great. And then that kind of then leads into a conversation about two different types of one about adaptation and one about mitigation and the first one about adaptation is kind of a it's our monthly kind of slot about coastal adaptations but this time we're going to talk about energy um there's a really interesting wave energy pilot occurring at grassy on king island mm-hmm. we know we have king island listeners because they send us yahoos every once in a while so hello king island good morning so grassy anchored offshore from grassy is a wave power plant working okay oh yeah working well so anyway um we're going to be joined by uh, Dr. Tom Dennis, who's going to walk us through, swim us through, maybe surface through, I don't know what you do with that, um, a wave plant and how it works. And then for the last part of the show, we're going to talk mitigation. We're going to talk about 
Not putting as much methane into the atmosphere. Some of us may have realised that one of the things that mm. I'm personally embarrassed about is that our government is not committing to reducing methane emissions. That you know, paying uh, off the nets. Government. Can I just point out all the major parties? Labor as well. Yep, Labor. The Greens didn't, but the yep. la- but the other three major parties all uh, dodged this one. Yeah, unbelievable. A lot of methane comes from um, leakages. Mm-hmm. Also comes from um, from cattle. Yeah, at the front end. At the front end, they burp it. Well, I almost thought it came out the back end. But a no, little bit it out comes the back. A little bit, but the little major bit out the back. Bit comes a lot of it comes yeah, out the front. Anyway, um, we're going to be talking to Dr. Steve Meller, who is over in Las Vegas in Nevada. But Steve's a, um, a well, psychologist. Yeah. Yes. He's a which psychologist. Is a, which is, a, as we know... Somebody who studies algae. Absolutely. And he's particularly interested in red seaweeds and what <laughs> red seaweeds can do when you add them to the feed of cattle <laughs> and dramatically reduce methane production. So, wonderful stuff. I just love um, that. Steve's with a company called CH4 Global and, yeah, very kindly agreed to have a chat to us via Skype in around, well, that'll be at around 10 to 10. 10. That's fantastic. I love this. I love this story, this idea that you can can change what comes out of cow burps. Oh, yeah. From Red Wonderful stuff. Hey, now the weather. Now, first of all, we've got the weather from Antarctica. Thanks to Cliff. Uh, we do have the weather yep. from Antarctica, uh, so thanks to Cliff at um, Casey. As we know, Cliff is our, um, our Antarctic correspondent. <laughs> uh, wind is 13 knots east-southeast, oh, um, and it's the average temperature is minus 16.2 degrees oh, this morning. Balmy. Wind chills minus 26, Ooh. humidity at 77. So, yeah, that's how it is for, um, for Cliff. And Cliff also sent us a message saying, Morning, busy day today. I leave station in about an hour to drive 70-odd k's. So this was sent about an hour ago. So he's on the way now. Yeah, he's driving 70-odd kilometres to yeah. Wilkins Ice Runway. Ooh. He's got the second flight from Hobart coming in and 23, 23 new expeditioners, so they're very oh, excited. Oh, welcome. Takes nearly four hours to drive up there, so that's 60K. <laughs> takes four hours and on on the cold, hard, icy surface of Antarctica. That's, that's like getting to Geelong on a bad day. Anyway, sorry. So his job is um, being baggage handler for the flight <laughs> which comes in on the Wilkins trip. What a great thought that is. Oh, that's sensational. Yeah, so, so big shout out to Cliff in Antarctica. You're probably not listening at the moment. but Well, um, he may yeah. have the car radio on or the whatever you're driving in in Antarctica. <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, and we might be wanting to know what's happening closer to home with the weather. Um, oh, yeah. Today's going to be around 17 that. degrees, bit of a sprinkle. Mm. Um, tomorrow's going to be so 17. Hang on, can I just check? When you say bit of a sprinkle, not like yesterday's sprinkle? Not like yesterday's like, okay, sprinkle. Right. Yeah, we've yeah. had like, you know, 15, 16 mils in the last 24 hours. It we was had that amazing. In, in our place. Yeah. Tomorrow's going to be 17 degrees. Tuesday, 19. Wednesday, a bit chillier, Anthony. It's going mm. to be 14. We Maybe a mm. bit more of a sprinkle, in, but a spri- oh. just a true sprinkle, just a few millimetres of rain, and maybe back up towards Thursday and Friday again we get a bit more. But not too warm, not, not up to the 20s again yet. It's going to be down below the 20s, in fact, closer to 14, 15 midweek. <laughs> <sighs> Chilly. Oh, uh, if you're heading out on the water, you'll be wanting to know what's happening with the tides, and it was low tide about an hour ago at mm-hmm. Point Lonsdale, which, of course, represents the heads of our Port Phillip. About an hour ago, which means ago. in five hours it'll be high tide. Yeah. I so there you so. go. Yeah, there you yeah. go. Oh, well, we haven't got any of that surf-related stuff or we're not going to go there. Nah, I don't surf. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> frankly... But the people that, I mean, that might sound a bit flippant, but the people who do know how to surf, they they'll be out there, stuff. they'll be onto it. They they'll, be, they'll be getting they much better yeah, information yeah, yeah. than I could sort yeah. of feed out yeah, to them yeah. now. Nice recovery, Dr. Beach. Yeah, nice um. recovery. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm excited. Just just really quickly, I just want to yeah. share a little bit of news. There was yeah. a, a big article which appeared in Nature uh, from yeah. people in the United States, mostly all over the place. 
pointing out how baleen whales actually consume about three times the amount of krill that we thought they <gasps> did. Really? Really amazing stuff. Three they've, times? Three times. They've studied all sorts of baleen whales, like humpbacks, for example, blue whales, all of those. Goodness. They've had monitors on their head. Yeah. Uh, and they've been measuring how they turn their heads around. So for and, those and, and that's a home. proxy for feeding, for lunging, all of that. So for those at home, Dr. Beach did the actions then in the studio. It was very, it was really, <laughs> this is when we need a camera. Like that was really, I understood what you meant before the words came out. Yeah. He was a whale manoeuvring his head, trying to get Twisting more Twisting it from side to yeah, side, yeah, which fantastic. is what I'm doing yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, I got lots of data um, and are able to show pretty convincingly modelling and all of that, that yeah, they're eating three times as much cool as they thought they did. Funny hey, thing hey, was hey. that when whaling happened, like, you know, once yeah. whaling kicked off and, you know, we were enthusiastically killing lots of whales, yeah. before that happened, there was apparently the sea was red down in Antarctica with krill. You could see that yeah, much krill. I've heard that. And then you might think that when you start to get rid of the whales, then their main prey, the krill, which are tiny little shrimp like mm-hmm. things, you force it, that they would increase in numbers. Mm-hmm. No, they've crashed. Krill huh. died off with the whales, not completely, still there. And they reckon what's happening is this is beautiful, the whales, this beautiful cycling of iron. So the whales would eat lots of wow. krill. They would then poop that out, swim around with their fins, mix it all up. Yeah. All that iron is limiting in Antarctica. Yeah. That then causes diatoms and other phytoplankton to bloom, to bloom. which then feeds the krill. So it's, this, it's like positive reinforcement. Wow. So when you get rid of the predator, the prey yeah, yeah, also yeah, yeah. dies down, which is, which really, is really, really, unusual. really very unusual. Oh, how and interesting. Yep, yeah, beautiful cycling. Of iron. Interestingly, the guy that wrote the perspectives for this, so in the journal Nature, yeah. so the, pub, the article appeared in Nature, yeah. and then there's a guy called Victor Smetacek um, who wrote the perspectives on it. He's from the Alpha Wegener Institute in Germany. Mm. Um, he was saying, look, well, yeah, no, this is the perfect reason now for us to go out and do shove iron into the ocean. Oh, I know, yeah. which oh. makes me kind of hesitant, or, stuffing around or, with things more. Or make sure that the place is okay for more whales to grow. I mean, that could, you know, like yeah, maybe just build on that. Have not we learnt to build on natural cycles? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. G'day, John Clark here. When I want to learn about all things wet and salty, which is a pretty much constant desire on my part, I tune into Radio Marinara Sunday mornings at 9am on 102.73 triple R. Uh, we do love John. We do. You know, he's just such a massive man. Um, you're on Radio Marinara. It is 17 minutes past the hour of clo- nine o'clock. That was um, Sugar from 1992, from no. one of the best albums ever made. 1992. Why'd you choose that? So great question, Doctor Beach. I chose 1992 because 1992 was the year of the second Earth Summit. And the mm-hmm. second Earth Summit was in Rio. By the way, the first Earth Summit was in Stockholm in 1972. Yep. But anyway, 1992, those who are alive remember the Earth Summit in Rio. And at the Earth Summit in Rio, the world signed, or many countries signed, a thing called the United Nations Framework for Convention on Climate Change, or the as it's known. Um, and <laughs> That's an acronym. Yeah, it is an acronym. And it came into force in March 94, and it was a treaty. And 97 parties, key word there, parties. Parties. Which is 990, sorry, 197. I like parties. 196 countries and the EU signed it, and they became the parties that are the P of the COP. Conference of the Parties. Conference of the Parties. It took me a while to figure that out. Me too. I, 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 I had to do. I must have had to do three Google searches to find yeah. that out. What is a COP? 
What's a COP? What's a COP? So it, it stands for Conference of the Parties. And the 26 means there's been 26 of them since 1994 or 5, I think. Um, and the idea was, actually it might have been 97 the time they had the first one. But anyway, the idea was of this convention, which we all signed, all the, all the parties mm-hmm. um, signed this convention. And the idea was to raise public awareness worldwide on climate change issues in 1990, which is 20 which is 30 years ago. Yeah. When we started this show in 1996, in our first two or three shows, we covered global warming. We're still doing it. Um, the objectives of the first of the initial signatures, that this this convention, which had become known as the, the COP Agreement. signatories. Yep. Was to stabilise the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and to then create the COP. And the COP is known as, you're going to love this, in your United Nations speak, the supreme organ of the, the supreme convention. Organ. Yep. That's right. <laughs> it's a UN term. <laughs> anyway, and it's all the countries there. And what happens is every year, um, a whole lot of environmental experts, ministers, heads of state, non-government people, business people all turn up and have an annual COP. And the annual COP is to kind of remind people. Now, a COP is actually a year-long process. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it culminates in the COP whatever number. In Getting the together. So they all prep and then they finally meet. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah. they meet in some you know, like. Wherever. Where are they now? Yeah, they're in Glasgow. Glasgow. But this one, right, was meant to be last year, but of course COVID, they paused it for a yeah. year. Yeah. And it started, when they, when they kicked off again properly, it started with a Climate Ambition Summit mm-hmm. in December last year. Where all the leaders got together and decided how ambitious they'd be. <laughs> Someone asked, how does it relate I to told, Paris? I, I wish I wasn't laughing. Yeah, don't. Yeah, yeah, don't. So how does it relate to Paris? Well, Paris was COP21. Yeah. So that was five years, five cops ago. And then for the Paris, 21, COP 21, okay, COP this. First time ever that they all agreed to work together to actually limit emissions. 21 times they'd been going since yep. Rio. 21 yeah. times. Anyway, Paris they did. And, of course, we all know the Paris Agreement. We're going to keep it below two degrees or better still below 1.5. At the moment, we're heading to three degrees, so yep. we're not doing too well. So, um, And then the idea was to do three things, do that adapt to the impacts of climate change and make money available to other people, to the to the poorer nations, mm-hmm. so they can do it. COP twenty six is going to run to for another week and it's it's create it's been led by Italy and the UK. So you swap around, countries swap around the leadership. Right. So the previous COP was mm-hmm. in Italy. Oh no, they're, they're leading no, this conference. Leading Italy this, and, the UK and the UK are leading this, this particular and, one. And I can't work it out but I suspect that means the next no the next one is in, in UK and someone else. So Italy must have done the last one. And and, and, it it, on. It's interesting. We didn't kind of hear too much no. about that. So no. Paris, we remember, and you said yeah. that was COP21. Copenhagen, we remember. Kyoto, we remember. Copenhagen, we remember. Yeah, Kyoto, yeah. we remember. Yeah. So what happened to the ones in the middle? Well, they did things, but nothing massive occurred. And so often, it's only f- every five years or so? No, no, cop- no. No, often it's related to who's running it and their appetite. Right. And how much they want to go for it. And I think Johnson, Boris Johnson, as much as he's a weirdo, decided... I'm going to. He's really on board with with yep. you know climate change impact and trying to do something about it. So, um, I like our government as well. He's a massive, <laughs> you know, he's a massive believer in needing to transition communities. Yeah, he is. And so, anyway, under the Paris current, so there's lots of acronyms. Okay, mm-hmm. a couple of acronyms. Hit me with some more. Yep. Okay. I love acronyms. Paris Agreement. All the people who signed up, countries, which is everyone, mm. agree, they 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 decided they became they decided to agree to nationally determined contributions or NDCs, and then the idea of every fifth COP 
was you would come back and you would be held accountable with to your colleagues about whether you'd achieved your NDCs. And uh, wait, what, what's going, an NDC? Your nationally determined contributions, your emissions, the right. amount you're putting into the atmosphere, which ours is not going down as fast as it should be for us to meet it. Even though the government keeps saying we're meeting and beating, we're not. Mm. We are not meeting and beating Paris. Um, and so they agreed every five years to, they'd come back and you'd report and then you'd also up, up it a little bit because the science is telling us we need to keep upping it. So they've yeah, got all that. Pace. And as everyone, everyone knows that mitigation is stopping the gases and adaptation is, is getting to ready to it. the impact. Yeah. So there's a lot about that. So COP26 aims to do four things. Okay. Yeah. First one, secure global net zero by mid-century and keep 1.5 degrees within reach. Okay. So net zero at 2050. Net zero by 2050. Adapt to protect communities and natural habitats. Adaptation. Yep. Mobilise finance. And the fourth one is work together. Work together. So collaborate, basically. Yep. So let me tell you, and it's really interesting, you look under these and some of them, like work together basically just has a whole lot of stuff about we should work together. Mm-hmm. You know? And then there's pathways about working together. Um, the finance one is really interesting. It's both public and private sector finance. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole lot of agreements. In Paris, the nations all agreed to raise $100 billion a year in climate finance to, to try and help developing nations um, mitigate and adapt haven't met it yet. There is no tracker. Nobody's tracking whether <laughs> countries are doing that. All countries have agreed to put it in. No one's doing it. So there's that one. Oh, anyway, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll kick in for that. There's there's a whole. There's actually really. It's really interesting. If this stuff was to be lived, it would achieve what it is set out to achieve. Because under this mobilised finance one, there's all these really cool and interesting stuff about how you should make private investment decisions um, for companies, for, for governments to, to kind of try and drive investment. Um, there's, there's, there's calls for, and, and ways that countries and companies can be transparent about where their risk and opportunity lies. So in it's climate. all set up. It's, 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 all, it's, set all, up. it's all ready to go. Yeah. And, it's a, and central banks and regulators and stuff for them to do, whether it's being lived or not, who knows. And all this is written down in the last agreement? Oh, totally. And, and then each, each time they revisit it, they're kind of beefing it up and talking about it further. The really critical ones this time were adapt and um, try and, you know, stick to global net zero. Yep. And the adaptation one, there's not a lot in it. But interestingly, the way that it's structured is there's a lot of call to use nature and ecosystems to drive the adaptation. So to, to kind of default to allowing nature to take its course where it's actually protective and things like we are talking about before about the whales and the iron and yeah. you know, rather than intervene because well, we le- learnt that we buggered it up when we tried to do the things, so let's just let nature help us. But so, leaving forests intact, that for example. That kind of stuff, exactly. And they did reach that big agreement. 100 countries signed that deforestation agreement, including us. Um, and then there's a whole lot of calls for protecting assets and restoring, as in natural mm-hmm. habitats. Um, and there's this really interesting thing called all countries should produce a adaptation communication. Is that like an, an alert? Like how, how are you going to deal with frying I, your face off? I think it's a... It says <laughs> in, 60 in, in or the 70 information years time. from the UN, it 10 says years time, 20 it's a years summary time. of what you're doing and planning to do to adapt. So I think it's basically about sharing best practice with each other. Right. 
right. you know, and kind of encouraging each other. Yeah. But the, the critical piece was really about um, restoring and protecting habitats and putting more finance in place. But the big one, of course, was net zero. And most countries, many of the big emitters, many, many, many of the big emitters have been actually looking at their, their intermediate admissions. So 2050 is net zero. Pretty yep. much everyone's doing that, even us. But most of them are looking at at least 45 to 50%, if not more reductions by 2030. Yep. And their hard work needs to be done in, in the next few years. So there's this main three main things they're working on. Accelerate the transition from coal to clean power. These are the actual objectives yep. and the programs. Protect and restore nature for the benefits of people and the climate and accelerate the transition to zero emission vehicles. It all sounds really good. If only it would be happening. Of those three, our country federally, our states are doing all three, but our country federally is potentially only doing a little bit of the middle one. <laughs> so it's really interesting. Anyway, Dr. Beach, it was very interesting looking at all. What's it mean for the oceans? What it means for the oceans is we're not on track to limit global um, warming to less than 1.5 degrees. We're at about three degrees, which means that we're looking according to SROC, which was the last big scientific view of the yep. melting of the ice caps and everything. We're looking at... Um, you know, going on as we are with the sea level rising, bringing more catastrophic flooding, um, we'll get probably close to about 1.1 to 1.2 mean sea level rise by 2021. 20, um, it means uh, more ocean acidification, more coastal erosion, more sea surface temperature rise. It effectively means the ocean, if we don't hit Paris, is at a tipping point. We're nowhere near hitting Paris. Um, even if we hit Paris, we've still got 70 centimetres of sea level rise locked in by 2021 so so that's why this cop was so crucial it was kind of like this decade is the yep. decade for doing stuff for holding the hose for doing stuff yep very interesting As, it was prince charles i think who said oh. um what do you say like this is the, this is the moment you've got to yeah. do it now yeah one one final question mm -hmm. so other acronym in this area mm -hmm. ipcc yes International no, panel, panel for Climate Change. Yes. So how does that feed into the COPs? Is they're, it, the is that the, they're the scientists. They're the scientists. Give the info to the decision makers. Yeah. 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 They're the ones. They're the ones that kind of you know let everybody know what the science, the modelling, and the economics, mm -hmm. and how it fits in. So yeah. There you go. That's you go. COPs That's in cops. thirty-five seconds or less. But yeah, it, it, very illuminating. Actually. Now, um. Wave energy is one way in which we can adapt and also mitigate our, um, you know, it's a renewable resource. Our emissions. Our emissions, yes, mitigate our emissions. So Dr. Tom Dennis is a PhD in mathematics and oceanography and is the executive chair and co-founder of Wave Swell Energy, which has deployed this very cool um, technology, like a wave energy plant called UniWave 200 um, in uh, just off King Island. And he joins us uh, live this morning on air. Good morning, Tom, and welcome to Radio Marinara. Hi, Anthony. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be on. Thanks for being able to join us. Now, let's start with the technology. So the UniWave mm -hmm. 200 is basically, as far as I can tell, a large artificial blowhole near the surf zone and that produces wave energy. So how does that actually kind of work? Well, you're correct. It is an artificial blowhole. Um, for those who are familiar with blowholes, it's like a, a big cave in the coastline and uh, waves move into them and uh, sort of push the air up through a spout. And uh, ours is an artificial version of that. So um, the, uh, the spout where normally there would be a spout, we have a, uh, a turbine, an air turbine that uh, 
uh, sits in there, and uh, the waves move the air um, back and forth, and uh, and it's uh, the air actually that flows past the turbine that um, generates the energy. So okay, oh gosh, that's incredibly simple. Is that different or similar to other wave technology, or is that kind of you know have you kind of got this as a different approach? Well, it's certainly a different approach. Um, there are many, many different types of wave technologies, but um, ours is classified broadly um, as an oscillating water column. Now, there have been uh, those types around before too, but they've worked um, on the airflow uh, coming from both directions. Now, ours is the first um, operating unit in the world that uh, operates unidirectionally. Now, what that means is um, we're only uh, extracting energy on the downstroke, of the, the wave, but you might think that that uh, would result in, in us not capturing as much energy as, as doing it the other way, but uh, in fact we get more, and I, I won't go into the, the technical, it's very technical as to why that is the case, but uh, but yeah, we um, we actually are able to uh, extract more direction, uh, more energy uh, unidirectionally than bidirectionally. And so then, the, and, and this, this, this piece of kit, this wave this energy plant, basically, it, it, it looks like it's actually in the surf zone. How on earth does it stay there? Oh, it's just designed, this particular one is designed as a, um, a gravity structure, so its weight it, um, keeps it um, stable on the, on the seabed. Tom, it's Dr Beach here. Um, Anthony's describing it being in the surf zone. I haven't seen pictures of this. Can you? How big is it? Can you kind of like... Give us a description of like how far from the shore it is, how big it is, what it looks like. Well, for it, yeah, the dis- the distance from the um, the shore is is really uh, dependent on the depth. Um, so we we try to you know place it at the right depth. So um, and of course there's tide tides and um, to, to um, classify it as in the surf zone that would I think be a um, at low tide. Uh, mm. But uh, generally it's it's not really in the in the surf zone, it's um, it's further out, and so and 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 it's about from the look of the, that I saw, it looks it kind of looks like a size. Is it about the size of a one-ton truck or a bit bigger? Uh probably a little bit bigger than a one-ton truck. Yeah. Um, it's uh, yeah, the 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 chamber itself is seven meters wide. Now oh. that's um, that's um, only uh, a two hundred kilowatt unit. So okay. in, in general, commercial units in the future will be larger than that perhaps um you know it it, it will vary um and uh, as the technology um matures but uh yeah it, it may be 20 meters or so wide mm. um so not huge for uh, for the amount of energy that uh, it extracts um compared to other types of energy they have a larger footprint mm. um because of the density of of uh weight of energy in water and in, in the waves um you can uh, generate um, the same amount of energy in a smaller space than uh, would be the case with um, with, uh, with solar and, and wind energy. Yeah, okay. I, I want to come back to um, how much it generates. It's interesting. The, so, so it's, it's quite a structure. And one of the interesting things that, that I've seen from some of the literature that, that um, around your company is it's the possibility of, of kind of multi-use so because it is physically large-ish it is something you could position in areas where you need protection protective um, defense assets and so you could actually have this almost like a kind of an offshore reef or or a seawall or something and making energy is that something where you're hoping to go 
Yeah, absolutely. That's um, you're spot on there, Anthony. Um, the uh, the technology, because of the of its style, um, can act. If you place units side by side, um, they can act as a, a seawall or, or breakwater, perhaps for for a harbour or marina, and um, and. You know that's a much more cost-effective way of building that type of um, of protection. That uh, you know, a, a breakwater, for example, um, instead of it being a, a sunk cost, which um, is yeah. well, as far as I know, has always been the case with any um, breakwater or seawall. It suddenly becomes um, something that uh, returns a, a revenue and uh, becomes a pro- becomes profitable at the same time, providing uh, cheaper and uh, and cleaner energy. It's so, almost, um, I've got to say, Tom, it's almost like a bit of a no-brainer once the technology's proven and, 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 you know, if people are needing to put in those kind of defensive assets, you'd almost think, why would you not make it do two things at once? You know, yeah, like, exactly. You know, well, why would you um, uh, spend money when, in fact, yeah. you can actually make money? And I tell um, me, can people? Can people? Uh, you know, I guess there is the thing that a lot of people use seawalls for fishing or walking, or you know, can you put like, you know, you can you put sand on top and can people sit there, or is it too dangerous because it's basically sitting next to a big industrial blowhole? Oh, I don't think we've thought quite that far ahead oh, okay. as to yeah, whether yeah. people can um, can. And we'll be able to access them. But um, look, you know, ultimately, if it's a breakwater, people do walk along breakwaters, yeah. and I can't see any reason why um, you know, it could be designed so that it was perfectly safe for uh, for people to um, to you know walk along and perhaps fish off. Uh, so yeah, it's a it's a, as you say, it's a definitely a no-brainer, and yeah. uh, particularly in places. Um, Take, take for instance the uh, the Maldives um, mm. in the Indian Ocean, the lowest lying nation on Earth. Um, average uh, elevation, I think, is 1.8 meters above sea level. So um, it really doesn't take much for, uh, sea level rise for um, for that country to be in you know grave danger. So um, they, then they generate most of their energy from diesel. So mm. uh, by providing um, these units to act as seawalls, and most of the, they acknowledge that of the 192 inhabited islands, most of them are going to eventually need um, seawalls right around them. Mm-hmm. So why wouldn't you um, use these sorts of units um, to uh, generate cheaper and cleaner energy, as I say, displacing the diesel, uh, at the same time providing the, the, the vital protection that they need? So in that way, it, it, yeah. it operates. It, Technology operates as a climate change uh, mitigation measure and adaptation. Um, yeah. And a, adaptation measure. Um, yeah. So, just last question: the the um, you know you mentioned about diesel. Um, uh, King Island is transitioning off diesel onto renewables. King Island is we've talked about this on the show before. Has got um, three forms of renewable. It's got your wave energy. It's got solar. It's got wind. Um, and I think actually it rarely needs to turn on the diesel generators anymore. And I guess if it had big batteries, how much power do you make? Do you make enough power to help? King Island be renewable? Well, we're certainly um, a part of the mix. We're mm. providing energy into the into the grid, and uh, um, you know, it, ultimately they they would like to um, to reduce their diesel as much as possible, and so uh, we're helping to fill in some of the gaps when uh, when solar and uh, wind might not be operating, and, and therefore every bit of of uh, electricity that 
that we produce that is used there is a little generally a bit less diesel that's used and so because this is a pilot um just to mm. to, to kind of um clearly the pilot is working are you you know with that one little plant that you said is it is it powering one house or is it powering more than one house Oh, when it's uh, when it's operating, um, you know, at its capacity, it's certainly more than one house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd, be, it'd be quite a few. Probably the whole street. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, Tom, um, it's fantastic. Yeah. Thank you so much. Really, really appreciate. We'd love to kind of keep in touch and just hear how it progresses. I, I got a sense that wave energy is going to become a growing part of our mix of renewables into the future. Yeah, I, absolutely. There's um, there's a lot of uh, evidence now starting to uh, come out that. Uh, suggests that that's exactly what will be happening so uh yeah we're um we're looking forward to being part of that mix good one thank you so much tom for joining us this morning my pleasure tom dennis there dr tom dennis from waveswell energy is so interesting it, it is cool story it is isn't it and yeah. how simple like Very simple. all you do is push up and down a, yep. essentially a big plunger and a, the yep. air pushes the turbine yep. <gasps> one thing i was going to ask him wow. but we kind of ran out of time yeah. is, like do, Presumably they can be moved around. Is it yeah, tethered yeah, yeah. while it's there? Is it, is it, is it tethered to really the bottom? Heavy. It's heavy. Super so, heavy. So, so it goes all the way down to the bottom? Sits on the bottom. Sits on the bottom. Sits on the bottom. Can't move. That's why it can be a seawall as well. Got it. How interesting. Really? Hadn't thought of that. Uh, a lot of methane, well, escapes from our pipes, from gas and, you know, coal, all of that. But cows. It, cows. A yeah. lot comes from cows. Burping cows. Been some very interesting technology which has emerged over the last... 10, 20 years, um, stuff that we've been intending to talk about on Radio Marinara, and that is feeding red seaweeds to cows. <laughs> Not quite, but using red seaweeds, um, grinding them up, using that as a supplement on the feed for cows, for oh, cattle, and this reduces methane emissions incredibly. We are oh, very yeah. fortunate today to have one of the leaders in this area, Dr. Steve Meller, whose company, CH4 Global, uh, is making great advances in this. Steve, are you there on Skype with us this morning from Fair USA? Can you hear me, Dr. Beach? We can hear you. Oh, dear, and we can hear other things. And we can hear other things as well, but we'll get rid of that. (laughs) We got rid of it. Steve, you're in Las Vegas. Thank you very much for joining us. What is it, Saturday Saturday afternoon for you? Saturday, uh, just before 4 p.m., so it's a gorgeous day here. Uh, your company, CH4 Global, what's the CH4 stand for? Well, methane. That's the chemical symbol for methane. So well, we started it three years ago. I guess we were less creative than what we probably could have been. So we just called it CH4 Global. <laughs> Tell us how bad, before we get into the, the fascinating stuff you're doing, the fascinating biology behind all of this, tell us how bad a greenhouse gas methane is in comparison to, say, carbon. So it. It's the major topic of what one of the major topics of conversation at COP26, this global methane pledge that you might have all heard about, 30% reduction by 2030. Which Australia is not signing up to. Which Australia is not signing up to. However, parts of the com- country are actually aligned to this goal, despite uh, leadership not being. So that's a different topic. But yeah. from an impact standpoint, um, it is the second largest greenhouse gas behind carbon dioxide but it is over a 20-year period and we only have eight to get to 2030 but over a 20-year period it's 86 times more impactful at warming than is carbon dioxide that's a huge thing and and in fact if the life of the methane is generally about 12 and a half years and so if we could address it 
we can actually have a really big impact in the next eight to nine years, disproportionately larger than anything else. Because methane remains in the atmosphere, as you just alluded to it, Dan, for a less amount of time than carbon dioxide does. Twelve yep, years. Centuries for carbon dioxide, 12 and a half years for methane. One of the biggest emitters of methane is the livestock industry. It, it is the single largest on it the is planet. So the globally, largest. it is larger than oil and gas, the contribution from ruminant fermentation, cows burping, wow. sheep as well, and camels and goats. But primarily cows is larger than the contribution from the oil and gas sector. Wow. Most people find that surprising. It isn't true. It is, it is a fact. I, I, I didn't know that. That is amazing. Wow. Yeah, and, and, and just going back to the politics a little bit before we get back to the biology, <laughs> it astounds me that Brazil, which I believe is the largest beef producer, the people who have kind of most interest, if you like, in, um, in keeping cattle and all of that, that they have not signed up to. Uh, well, they have signed up to reducing methane emissions, whereas we have not in comparison to Brazil, but which really is a bugbear for me. Um, and many other people, of course. But back to this, red seaweeds, one which is called asparagopsis, rejoices in that name. You are a phycologist. No, I'm not. I'm a, I'm a neuroscientist. Are you oh, really? I University of Adelaide a long time ago. I pretend to be a phycologist. We have <laughs> phycologists on our team. Yeah. But no, I'm a, I, my background is a PhD in neuroscience from Adelaide Uni. Right. Okay. Wow. So how did you get into this? You know, we don't have long, but I, I, I left Australia after my PhD to go do a postdoc. Like most people do, you go to the US or you go to the UK. I yep. went to the US, yep. stayed. Been here almost 34 years now. So I had an academic career for about a dozen years doing my own areas of research. I got recruited into a, a big Fortune 100 company, Procter & Gamble, actually, a $350 billion company. Spent the next two decades there doing really interesting stuff. And Took an early retirement 10 years ago, and I've been in what I'll call my entrepreneurial phase where I've done a bunch <laughs> of stuff, including this company. Okay, let's get to the biology. Yeah. Asparagopsis, this beautiful red seaweed. Um, how did it, how, when did people first start to realize that this, if you fed this to cattle, it was going to reduce the amount of methane it, that they burp? It, it goes back to a, a, res a Canadian uh, researcher called Rob Kinley, mm -hmm. um, who after initially uncovering really the impact of seaweeds broadly on cattle and some hints on methane reduction for other species, ended up at CSIRO in Townsville. And right next door is James Cook University. And they sort of went out and dived for a, a dozen or two dozen species off of the barrier reef, brought some back, one of which was asparagopsis. And as Rob will tell the story, he ran them on this artificial stomach model that he has came back after the night and 100%, 100% shutdown of methane production. He said, I don't believe it. Ran it two more times before he said, yep, this is real. Um, and it's really what started. And this is going back perhaps eight years ago or so. And, and so that was, so the other red seaweeds that he used didn't show that. It was only asparagopsis, this one genus. You know, there have been significant efforts over the last probably five years or so since really this was uncovered to find other seaweeds in different parts of the world, native ones. So, you know, you could grow it in your own backyard. And to date, with at least 300 that have been looked at from off of the northwest coast of the U.S., off of the northeast coast of the U.S., off of Iceland, off of parts of 
uh, the North Sea. To date, nothing else comes even close, five, perhaps 10% on a good day, whereas with asparagopsis, you're talking 90, perhaps 95% reduction. What is it about asparagopsis? So it, it appears to be unique. It, it's really how it's grown up since since the early days and eons and eons ago. Uh, and it's developed the machinery. So I should take one step back. All seaweeds on the planet, all 10,000 plus species, red, grunts, greens, browns, they all produce a series of chemicals called halogenated materials a bunch of halogenated compounds. Bromoform is the one that's often talked about. It's the highest concentration, but it's not the only one. In fact, Asparagopsis armata has 95 others and Asparagopsis taxiformis has about 100 others. But, but So they all produce it. It's part of their natural metabolic cycling, but Asparagopsis has evolved to actually create the machinery to store and concentrate it. And the reason that it's done that is so when this gorgeous plant, as you alluded to, it's, it's spectacularly beautiful in the water. It's like a, a Christmas tree floating around. And it's obviously very attractive to other marine species to come up and have a nibble. So they come up and have a nibble and they say, yeah, I don't like that. I'm going away. So it's really it's this defense mechanism that it's created over millennia. And uh, these these things grow in incredible crops in parts of the world where they're native now. So. And, and, and my, my, my kind of crude understanding is that so it, it's ruminants, it's, it's cattle which have, well, cattle and sheep and, and camels and things which have lots of bacteria which are digesting cellulose mm-hmm. uh, and then they produce methane. But if you chuck a bit of bromophore into the mix or some of these other halogenated compounds, then that interferes with the metabolism of the bacteria so that they are no longer making methane. Is that So, so it, it actually interferes... Uh, with one of the last steps in the conversion of the precursors, which are volatile fatty acids like acetate and propionate and butyrate, the energy sources for the cattle actually out of those complex carbohydrates. And so a portion of that, about 12 to 15 percent, is then converted onto methane. And one of the last steps in there is an enzymatic a vitamin b12 dependent enzymatic conversion and it actually blocks the enzymatic conversion to methane so you retain all of these extra volatile fatty acids in the cow so the cow actually is more efficient at doing what it does producing beef and milk I, I, so you get two bangs for the buck it's... you get rid of the methane and you have a more efficient cow and the science and the data is bearing that out and there's more to come and it continues to bear that uh, both of those out as as very large benefits. It's it's remarkable. It's anthid, Steve. This is remarkable. It, it, how, I got. How do you get it in the cow though? Like I, I don't see a lot of cows, you know, kind of nibbling on these algae. How do you get it in the cow? So that's the really big trick. So when you when you harvest it from and and we aquaculture it. Mm-hmm. Others in the space are aquaculturing it. So we don't harvest wild material and use that to sell. It's, it's not, that's not a sustainable business model. So we aquaculture it in the ocean. We aquaculture it in large tanks and actually in ponds as well, old shrimp farms and mineral, uh, mineral ponds as well. And in all of those circumstances, when you harvest the plant to, to when you put it in the cow, that bromoform, or the, I keep using bromoform, but there's 95 other things in here. It's all trying to get out. It's a volatile material itself. So it doesn't want to stay there when you're starting to process it. So a lot of the tricks from the processing standpoint, the harvesting and the processing is how do you do what you need to do 
mostly take water out, transport it, take the water out, powder it. So all of that volatile, halogenated bromoform and other materials is still in there, or most of it, as much of it as you can. And that's really the trick. And that's, um, that's, that's the some secret, of the tricks of the trade you, that we've gonna, developed yeah. over the last couple of years. <laughs> Steve, this has been a fascinating conversation. And, 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 and unfortunately, we have, as we always do, we've run out of time. We've got another show, which is banging at the door here. It's been fantastic to speak to you, Dr. Steve Miller from CH4 Global. Um, thank you for getting on the blower with us today from Las Vegas. And um, I'd really Happy like to, to continue it. this conversation. Oh, yeah. Perhaps in a couple of months' time, we can get you back on and see where it's going. I'll be down in Australia in a month. Oh, Just awesome. Right. Christmas, yeah. Let's hook up. We'll talk to you when you're here. All right. Cheers, Thanks, thank Steve. you very much. Really appreciate it. So, See ya. Cheers. That was wow, very illuminating. Remarkable, isn't it? You know, and, and you know, it sounds like we at this country are a world leader, and yet we didn't sign to the agreement. We could be a market leader yeah. in this in this stuff. It's an Australian algae. <gasps> How extraordinary. Mm. Wow. Hey, thank you so much to our guests today. Thank you so much to Dr. Tom Dennis. I'm um, talking about wave energy. Dr. Steve Meller from um, CH4 Global. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.